Good morning. I have to turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, where we'll be this morning. Lord willing, the plan is to resume in the Gospel of John next week. Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 37 through 41 is what I'll read. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that we have the opportunity to be pointed to truth, to your goodness, to the gospel. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study your word, that we may be pointed to what is true and to hold to that, and be faithful to that. Lord, we come here today, I'm sure we all had... Different weeks. Some of us had good weeks. Some of us had bad weeks, Lord. But whatever week we had these past seven days, Lord, we thank you that we're here today to be able to worship your great name. Lord, I also do want to pray for farmers, especially the way the weather has been so far this spring, Lord. Just the uh, problems that that's caused, Lord. And not just here, but worldwide. There's issues in Ukraine, issues in uh, Nebraska here in the States, Lord. And these are serious things, and so we just pray that we get good weather and uh, that the farmers have a, a good planting season, Lord, because all of us need that, Lord. And so we pray for that, Lord. We uh, know that you are a God who hears our prayers, and we praise you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Sixty-nine years ago next month, in June of 1953, a coronation celebration was held for Queen Elizabeth II. It was a festive event which displayed the various traditions of pomp and celebration that are so often associated with our images of royalty. But the coronation was not when Elizabeth became the queen. In fact, by June of 1953, Elizabeth II had ruled as Queen of England for over a year. More on that in a little bit. Talking about baptism today, it's a subject which has a rich tradition within the church and which at times, has been a source of heated division. The importance of baptism is almost universally agreed upon within Christendom. But from that common starting point, churches have diverged on nearly every aspect of baptism. Questions which have been at the forefront of the historical debate have included, who can be baptized? Is it for believers or for believers and their children? Who can do the baptizing? Does it have to be a pastor, or can others from within the church or even biological family baptize? How should the baptism be administered? Should a person be dunked in water, or sprinkled with water, or have water poured on them? Is there anything special about the water itself? first church I ever attended was a Presbyterian church, and whenever they would do baptisms, they had a, a bottle of water uh, from the Jordan River in Israel, and he would always pour a little bit of that water into the baptism water. I think it's a cool thing to do, but is there anything spiritually significant about that? Other questions. 
what is said during baptism. I read a story a couple months ago about a Catholic priest who for over 20 years was doing baptisms, realized he was saying the wrong words. He was supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What he was actually saying was, we baptize you. And in the eyes of the Catholic Church, those baptisms are not considered valid. Is there any formal preparation for baptism? Throughout history, we see this in the second century. Some churches required fasting before baptism. Other churches today in more modern times have had confirmation classes or catechism classes before being baptized. What do you wear when baptized? Some churches had people wear white. Once again, in the early church, sometimes they would actually have people get baptized naked. We actually had you wear more clothes. We don't do that. But. What does baptism signify? Is it the cause of you being born again? Does it literally wash away sin? What happens spiritually when a person is baptized? Does it save us? Does it help save us? Do we receive the Holy Spirit when we're baptized? And there are many, many other questions. Just about the only thing churches agree on with baptism is that it involves water. And we won't have time to answer all of those questions today. As I said at the beginning, baptism is a subject which has been debated throughout the history of the church. Where books, which are hundreds of pages long, have been written, which discuss the history, the theology, the practices of baptism. But I want to begin with a couple of general comments on baptism. One, baptism is important. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the risen Jesus commands his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Baptism is important to Jesus, and it should be important to his church. At this church, we teach and practice believer's baptism, sometimes called credo-baptism. Credo comes from the Latin word believe. That is the idea that in order to be baptized, a person must give a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior in whom they have placed their faith. The other major side of the baptism discussion are churches who practice infant baptism. I know many people from this church were raised in churches who practiced infant baptism and were yourselves baptized as infants. The believers or infant baptism discussion is an important subject. While we don't teach infant baptism, there are churches who do, who are faithfully preaching the gospel, who love Jesus, who love the word of God. They are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who agree on the importance of baptism, but disagree not on if, but when a person should be baptized. And while I affirm believers' baptism, I would also like to say that I can sincerely respect the arguments for infant baptism. I read those arguments, and it's not like I come away thinking, well, how could you possibly think that? I don't think it involves crazy leaps in studying the Bible to come down on that side. Now, they have legitimate points, but I think that the biblical reasons for believers' baptism are simply stronger. I'll tell a quick story. 
a few years ago. This is before Carrie and I had ever talked to this church or interviewed here with Christian Bible Church. We actually interviewed at another church. And during the interview, the subject of baptism came up, and they also believed in believer's baptism. But they started talking about infant baptism And it really turned into them mocking that idea and mocking churches who practice that. I didn't appreciate that. Again, I think that there are disagreements on this subject. And when they happen, it should be done in a spirit of grace and respect with those who might hold a different view. It wasn't the only factor, but it was definitely a factor when they asked me to candidate and I told them no. Lucky you. (laughs) There's a lot that can be said on this topic, but today I want to focus on three things. The case for believer's baptism, how we do baptism, and the importance of baptism. First, the case for believer's baptism. Why should we believe believer's baptism? There is not one single text in the Bible which explicitly calls for the baptism of newborns or infants. I'll say that again. There is no text in the Bible which explicitly says that babies ought to be baptized, or for that matter, that anyone who cannot profess to believe in the gospel should be baptized. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Acts, and it's an important passage. It takes place on Pentecost. That's the day when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the disciples and the new followers of Jesus. I often talk about the ordering of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. But then after that, you have his ascension when he ascended into heaven. That's in Acts chapter 1. And then you have Pentecost, which is when the Spirit is poured out on the church in this passage of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost Sunday is observed the seventh Sunday after Easter. Now, let's look at this passage. In Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, the Apostle Peter gives his Pentecost sermon. Aside from the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the second most famous sermon in the whole Bible. In this sermon, Peter is talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Christ, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. Peter also talks of how the Old Testament looked to a time when God's Spirit would be given to God's people. Verse 37 picks up, and people are responding to what Peter has just preached. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The people are asking how they should respond to the gospel that Peter has just preached. Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. And the order is important. It's not be baptized and then maybe, hopefully, in a few years, you'll repent. Now, the book of Acts chronicles the activities of the early church and the pattern that we see in Acts is that a person responds to their own personal faith and that that faith precedes baptism. In Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, the apostle Philip has preached the gospel and people have believed. 
But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Acts chapter 9, verse 18, following the conversion of Saul, who we better know as the Apostle Paul. I don't have a slide for that one. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And that is immediately after Christ himself appears to Paul, and he responds in faith. Acts chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul now sharing the gospel in Ephesus. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has who was to come after him, that is Jesus, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there are other examples, but that's the pattern, and I would argue that that's always the pattern in the New Testament. A person has faith, believes in the gospel, and baptism is a response to an inward faith. At Pentecost, Peter said to repent and be baptized. True true repentance is something that we do because of faith. Repentance is looking to our own sinfulness and turning from that. That requires both faith and an awareness of sin. Now, one of the common arguments for infant baptism is that in the same book of Acts, there are also household baptisms. And there are four such passages in the book of Acts where A household is referred to as being baptized. Four in Acts and one in 1 Corinthians. In those passages, a person comes to faith, they are baptized, but the passage mentions that their household is also baptized. That argument assumes that surely in at least some of those houses they had a baby around somewhere. So that's an example of infant baptism. None of those passages specifically say that there were infants or children. A person could counter that none of those passages say that there wasn't. That's true. But the more significant point when considering household baptism in the book of Acts is the fact that none of those passages point to one person coming to faith and the rest of their family also getting baptized against their will as unrepentant, unregenerate non-believers. I'll show what I mean. In Acts chapter 16... We learn about a Philippian jailer who asks Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. Verses 30 and 31. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, I can see how people go down that road. So does that mean that if this man comes to faith, his entire household will also come to faith? Is this text saying that if this man believes, then his whole family will believe because he believed? No. Next couple verses. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, a person could still look at this and argue that the whole household got baptized because the father became a Christian. But the key is in the next verse, 34. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The most plausible interpretation 
is that his household also believed, and that was the source of their rejoicing. It was not because he had a family of unrepentant people who opposed the gospel, who received a no-faith baptism, and they're rejoicing at somebody coming to faith in a gospel that they don't believe in. That doesn't make sense. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, talks of the household of a man named Crispus being baptized. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. There, it's people who have faith. The household is baptized, but it's because of their faith in the gospel that they believed. That's the pattern that we see in the book of Acts. In our primary text, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we see believers responding to the gospel in faith. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 10 talks of the household of Cornelius coming to faith. As a response to that faith, they're baptized. I don't have a slide for this, but Acts chapter 10, verses 46 through 48. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone, willing, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, the household of Cornelius is baptized as a response to their faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul mentions having baptized the household of a man named Stephanus. But then in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, at the end of the letter, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. The last example, Acts chapter 16, talks of a woman named Lydia coming to faith and being baptized along with her household. That's the one text where there's not quite as much elaboration, but given the pattern that we see elsewhere, I think the best argument is that her household was baptized because her household believed in the gospel. And I return to my premise from the beginning, that there's not one single text in the Bible which definitively points to infant baptism. Even the household baptism passages point to households being baptized after they've responded to the gospel by faith. All of the passages we've discussed, I would argue, point to the consistent pattern in the New Testament of having faith in the gospel and being baptized as a result of that faith. Something else I find interesting about the argument for household baptism is the fact that people who advocate for that point do not practice it today. People might advocate for it, but if someone joins a church today... There's not an expectation that their whole family, their kids, their spouse, their parents who live with them, everyone in the house is also going to get baptized into a faith that they don't believe. Second point, how do we baptize? We view baptism as an outward symbol of an inward faith. As the pattern goes, faith and repentance come before baptism. It's not that repentance saves you, but as I've already said, repentance is a natural response to a genuine faith as a person is born again in Christ and a new believer. The Bible is clear that a person must be born again to see heaven. Jesus says that in John chapter 3, verse 3. 
Being born again is to be regenerated and given new spiritual life as a work of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a debate about when exactly a person receives the Holy Spirit. There are churches who believe that a person receives the Spirit at the moment of their baptism. We believe that a person has the Holy Spirit at the moment they come to faith. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it's the idea that when we come to faith, we are baptized in the Spirit. That baptism in the Spirit is something that John the Baptist talks about in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. He's baptizing people, and there are those who come to him to ask him if he's the Christ. John is quick to say that he is not, and talks of his baptism and how it points to a greater baptism, the baptism of the Spirit. To quote from Luke 3, 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit when we come to faith. There are also churches who believe that a person can come to faith, not have the Spirit. This is more the Pentecostal view, but that when they have a special spiritual outpouring of speaking in tongues, that that signifies the Spirit and is the time when they should be baptized. I won't get into all of those passages today, but I would argue that the New Testament consistently shows that we receive the Spirit at the moment we come to faith. That there are passages in the Gospels that point forward to a future time of the Spirit, but that's because those passages are prior to Acts chapter 2. But that after Acts chapter 2, after God has poured out His Spirit on His people, that that has become the model up through today and until Christ comes again, that when people believe in the Gospel, they are, at that time, regenerated by the Spirit. Um, I would argue that a person who does not have the Holy Spirit is not truly born again and does not have faith and is therefore not a Christian. So we are baptized in the Spirit, and as a result of that baptism... As a response, we are baptized in water as an expression of the faith that we have already placed in Christ. In the beginning, I talked about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. As I said, she was already the Queen of England. The coronation did not make her the Queen. But it was a public display and celebration that she was the Queen. For believers' baptism... The baptism doesn't make you a Christian, and it does not give you the Holy Spirit. You already had those at the moment you trusted in Jesus. But the baptism is a public confirmation and declaration of what you believe. 
Now, I want to talk for a moment about the word baptism. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse or submerge. That's the word that gets used in the New Testament to describe baptism. That's why we practice baptism by immersion. Greek has words for sprinkle or for pour water. Those aren't the words that are used. Baptizo is the word that gets used, and that's why we do baptism by immersion. Baptism by immersion is also the manner in which the Lord Jesus himself was baptized during his ministry at the beginning. I feel like if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. We baptize anyone who will give a free profession of faith in Christ. When I say a free profession, that is to say that they are doing it of their own free will. That we don't coerce someone who might not actually believe to say that they do. We only want to baptize people who genuinely believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because that is the triune formula which Christ himself gave to the apostles. Our third point, the importance of baptism. We've talked about the reasons for believers' baptism. But the next thing where I want to turn my attention to is the reason for why we should be baptized. I already quoted this passage and actually just referenced it a moment ago. But in the Great Commission, Jesus sent the disciples out into the world in Matthew 28 with the command to make disciples and baptize them. From our passage in Acts chapter 2, when the people asked what they must do in response to Peter's gospel-proclaiming sermon, he said to repent and be baptized. Baptism is not an option for a Christian. There is no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized believer. Some movements take baptism too far to one extreme where they make it almost a salvific event in itself. Believers Baptists can make the mistake of going to the opposite extreme where we act like it doesn't matter. It does matter. Christ commands it. A person might ask the question, well, do I have to be baptized to be saved? I would say that's the wrong question. The right question is, do I have to be baptized to be obedient to the commands of Christ? Yes, you do. Is there any good reason for a Bible-believing Christian not to be baptized? No, there's not. We are saved by faith. Baptism does not save you, but as the Bible teaches, it's what Jesus commands of us. Why does he command it? It's not arbitrary. I'll make a confession. I, as a younger believer who didn't know any better, used to think baptism was kind of silly. You have to get dunked in some water. That's a significant thing. Baptism is not an arbitrary practice that Christians just randomly decided to start doing. During the ministry of Christ, John the Baptist had a ministry where he was the forerunner to Jesus and he baptized with a baptism of repentance. But John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. Before he was even born, baptism was being practiced. When a non-Jewish a Gentile converted to Judaism, they made him or her get baptized. And if you go back even further, while we don't have baptism in the Old Testament, you do have various washing rituals, both for ordinary people and for the priest, which were meant to show purity and to prepare people for various 
religious activities, especially in a place like the book of Leviticus. There's this strong emphasis on cleanliness and purity and avoiding that which is unclean. All of that is meant to show the purity which God requires. In Exodus chapter 19, before the giving of the Ten Commandments, as part of the covenant with Moses, the Israelites were told to wash their garments. There are also Old Testament passages which seek a deeper cleansing from God. In Psalm 51, as David reflected back on his terrible sin of having an affair with a married woman, he prays to God for cleansing. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then he says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And certainly, baptism has a basis in the Old Testament. I won't get into this whole debate today for sake of time. But... In the New Testament, we do see that there is an analogy between circumcision as an outward sign for God's people and baptism as an outward sign for all of God's people. Baptism is an outward symbol. It is a symbol of sin being washed away. Jesus died for our sins, and when we believe in him, we are washed clean of sin, but not only that, we are united with Christ. We are dead and raised with Christ. Baptism also symbolizes that. In Romans chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism points us to that. It points us to the gospel. It points us to the death and resurrection of Christ. And by the way, Romans 6, I think, is another reason for favoring baptism by immersion. That there's a symbolism of going down in the water and coming back up. Symbolic of being dead to sin, dead to your former life, and raised to new life because of Christ. Baptism also points us to the church. That's another reason why I believe believers' baptism. Because of the theology of the church itself. What is the church? I'm not talking about a building. I'm not even talking about this church. What is the church? The church is comprised of all who are part of the body of Christ. And the true church are all people who have been saved by faith in Christ. To quote from the book of Colossians, I didn't make a slide for this one, but Colossians 1, verses 18 through 23, Paul is talking about the imminence of Christ over the church when he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. The true church is comprised of faithful believers in the gospel. It is true that in the Old Testament you had an ethnic Israel, but the Old Testament also talked of a future time when God would usher in a new covenant where the people of God would be set apart based on faith, not ethnicity. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in that passage, it is pointing back to the old covenant and how the Israelites repeatedly broke it. The passage is also pointing forward to a future time of a new covenant that will be different from what came before. And a distinguishing mark of this covenant is that God will put his law in his people in their hearts. That is pointing to people who are true believers. In that same passage, to me the very striking verse is the next verse, 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive them their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What that passage is saying is that in this time of a new covenant, God's people will know him. It is clear from the Old Testament that you had many in Israel who were not walking with God and who did not love or honor God. But that is not the case with the new covenant. It says, they shall all know me. You are not in the new covenant if you don't know the Lord. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion. That's the other sign of the new covenant. Everything in communion revolves around remembering. Remembering the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. Remembering his body broken for our sins. It's for people who know the gospel and who believe in the gospel. There are churches who have hundreds of members on their rolls, but only a tiny fraction of those people come to church or have anything to do with the church. But they were baptized one time. I said this in the beginning, and I'll repeat it, that I do appreciate arguments, some of the arguments for infant baptism. But a danger in some churches, not all, but some churches... Is that for churches who teach things like salvation through baptism or baptism literally washing away sin or baptismal regeneration, it can give a false sense of eternal security to a person who is faithless and cares nothing for the things of God. And again, there are different positions for infant baptism. Not everyone who believes in infant baptism believes that the baptism itself saves. But there are those who do. And when we believe that a baptism can save a person apart from faith, we run the risk of resorting to works. We also run the risk of turning baptism into a superstition. Another key Old Testament passage 
which looked forward to a new covenant people of God who would have the spirit of God and live lives for God is Ezekiel 36. What metaphor does Ezekiel use to describe this new spiritual life? Water. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit is talked about as a cleansing with water. It is the spirit of God and the people of God who have been given a new heart by God and who are enabled by the spirit to live lives in obedience to God. And this cleansing with water, which is is compared to the Holy Spirit, is for believers. We saw at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Believers in God have the spirit of God poured out on them. The new covenant is people who are united in faith, not united along ethnic lines or familial lines, but united by faith, a family of faith. And baptism is a response to that faith, not a precursor to the hope of a future faith. We're just about out of time this morning. I want to close with a couple things. June 5th is five weeks from the day. Pentecost Sunday. In the early church, there's evidence that that was a popular occasion for baptisms. It makes sense. What fitting time there, what more fitting time could there be to celebrate what Christ has done than to be baptized on the day that commemorates when the Spirit was first poured out on the church? If you've never been baptized, but consider yourself to be a Christian, I want to encourage you to get baptized. If anyone wants to get baptized or wants to talk about baptism, please talk to me. And this is where I want to close. I've heard various excuses throughout the years as to why people haven't gotten baptized. I also asked some of my pastor friends excuses that they've heard over time. And I wanted to just address a few of those. One, I made slides for these. It's not necessary. Yes, it is. Jesus commands it. Two, I'm afraid of water. It's a little baptismal. It's not the ocean. Three. I don't want to get my hair wet. Wear a swim cap. Four. I'm too old. You're never too old to be obedient to God. Five. I'm embarrassed. Now, I can appreciate that a little bit. There might be different reasons why a person would be embarrassed. Maybe you've never gotten baptized and you're at an age where you feel like you should have done it by this point and didn't. And now you think you're going to look silly getting baptized. I can appreciate that. It's not a good reason to not get baptized, but I can appreciate it. In Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. If you're someone who's never been baptized and you feel embarrassed about that fact, come talk to me. I promise you that I will not recoil in fear and terror that you never got around to it. You can't change the fact that you haven't been baptized yet, but you can do something about it on June 5th and get baptized. 
Part of the purpose of baptism is that it is a public proclamation to the world that you identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, if you've waited this long and finally do it now, people aren't going to judge you. People, people will love it. We're close to graduation time, that time of year. I feel like every year around this time I see a story about some like 90-year-old who's just finished their bachelor's degree. People love those stories. No one's going to think you're silly or too old if you're just now getting baptized. Don't let that be the reason you don't do it. Don't let pride be the reason you don't do it. Don't let vanity be the reason you don't do it. Don't let stage fright be the reason you don't do it. Reason number six, excuse number six. God hasn't told me to get baptized yet. I would argue it's the devil telling me not to get baptized, to disobey his command. You don't need a divine prompt to do something that Christ universally commands for his church. You have God's word that tells you to do it. Seven, doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It applies to all Christians. Yes, there's a thief on the cross in Luke who, to be fair, for all we know, he might have been baptized if he was a Gentile who converted to Judaism. Probably not, but we don't definitively know that he wasn't. But either way, there is grace. There are people who convert on their deathbed, and there's not an opportunity to baptize them. God is gracious. That's not the same thing as somebody being a Christian and having multiple opportunities and just not doing it. Do it. Eight. I just don't want to. Once again, it's a command of Christ for all Christians. Nine. I'll do it next time. If then, why not now? As Nike said, just do it. I'll close with one more question that some people might have. If you were baptized as a baby, should you be baptized again as a believer? That's a decision that I can't make for you. Again, you don't have to believe believer's baptism to be part of this church. But if you do believe, if that is your view that you have taken, and you believe in believer's baptism, and is what the Bible teaches, and you have never been baptized as a believer, I think it's worth at least prayerfully considering. If you were baptized in a church that does not preach the gospel, I would say you should get baptized for real. Uh, there are pseudo-Christian movements that do baptism, like Mormonism. I, was, I don't think that applies to anybody in here, but if that did, I would say that such a person should be baptized again in a church that has a proper understanding of Christ and the gospel. I'm happy to, to discuss that as well, though. I know we have a couple people looking to get baptized here in a few weeks. I'd love to have more join them. Again, if you've never been baptized, but you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, please talk to me. There are two ordinances which the church observes which were given to us by Jesus. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We teach that both are meant for those who have responded to Jesus in faith. And actually, here in a moment, if the deacons want to come forward as we get ready for communion. Again, both baptism and communion point us to the gospel and to what Christ has done for us. They both point us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they both point to fulfillment of Old Testament practices. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As I always say, at this church we practice open communion, meaning that it is open to anybody who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, this is something that we do as another reminder, as a tangible reminder that points us to the gospel. Part of the reason why I picked today as a communion Sunday is because I knew I was going to be talking about baptism. And I thought, what better occasion that these two ordinances which Christ has given this church, that they go together, things that point us to the gospel and that we share as a church and that our outworkings, things that we do as a result of our faith and are invited to do for our own goodness and blessing and edification. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are invited to your table, Lord, and we are invited to your eternal feasts. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to receive communion, Lord, and to again be reminded that we have a Savior whose blood was shed for our sin, whose body was broken for our sin. Lord, we praise, these, we praise you and pray that we would do this with a ready heart and mind. In Jesus' name, amen.